0: Amen. Take your Bible and open to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and as you're turning there, let me suggest to you a possible historical reconstruction, a possible scenario by which uh, the book of Hebrews was received. Uh, Try to imagine, if you can, in your imagination to listen to the letter, perhaps the way the first recipients might have heard it. So in that context, you're part of a small house church of, of Jewish Christians. And your world is falling apart, as it were. You're faced with much difficulty and hardship. Uh, You're uh, enduring increasing difficulty and trials uh, because you become a Christian. Judaism is at least a tolerated religion in the Roman Empire at this time, but Christianity is not. And you're part of that group of people. You're part of a group of people that are facing increasing persecution, the loss of property, the loss of privilege, the loss of liberty. And you're being tempted because of this persecution to go back to Judaism. You have been regarded as dead by your family because of your conversion to Christ. They've had a funeral for you. They've burned your belongings, your clothes, or buried them. And to them, you do, you no longer exist. So you have no family. You have no long time, long term friends. You're an outcast, you're a social and religious outcast from your community because you've been put out of the synagogue which by the Jewish religious authorities. And you are already up to this moment, already paying a high price for your initial commitment to Christ, remembering the former days when you endured harsh conflict of suffering after you were enlightened. At times you were publicly exposed and abused to afflictions, and at other times you came to share with others who were treated in that way. For in fact, you shared the sufferings of those in prison and accepted the confiscation of your belongings with joy because you knew that the certainty, uh, knew that the certainty uh, you had a better and a lasting possession. So that description right there that comes out of Hebrews 10, obviously, uh, is a description of the suffering that fits in well with the hardship that occurred to Jewish Christians under a man named Claudius Suetonius uh, in uh, 49 AD. Uh, riots had broken out in the Jewish quarter at Rome and then uh, this uh, man expelled all the Jewish Christians from Rome. A few later, a few later uh, years later have, have gone, or a few years have gone by, and the, the hardship remains uh, uh, that you're a part of in this Jewish, formerly Jewish Christian now community. And there's great persecution that is looming. Uh, no one has been killed yet, but the possibility of martyrdom remains. It's nearer on the horizon than it has perhaps ever been. Uh, the, the writer says, for you not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, but again, that may soon be coming. There's a great fire in Rome in, 14, in uh, 64 AD, likely set by the emperor Nero, and uh, the historian Tacitus records that Nero made the Christians scapegoats to try to remove suspicion from himself. Therefore, from 64 AD forward, martyrdom becomes a very serious aspect of the Christian experience in Rome. Uh, The threat of arrest and death is real. And again, you and your other Jewish Christian friends are in great need of encouragement. Uh, You're in great need of admonishment. Uh, This group that you're a part of, a small group of Jewish Christian believers are scared. And because of that, some of your uh, group have begun to avoid contact with outsiders some have even themselves withdrawn from the worshiping community altogether, forsaking the assembly altogether, as is the habit of some, rather than encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's a great reality of the fact that you or one of your friends, if arrested, they, or you may publicly deny Christ. So the difficulties are real. The pressure is tremendous and its mounting. And you're a part of this small, tiny home church, and you, uh, along with others, are doing what we often do. You're asking hard questions such as, if God knows what's going on here, why doesn't he want? Why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he help? Doesn't God care? He could protect us, but he's not. Why doesn't he answer us? Why is he silent? So I think it's in the midst of that scenario, this letter arrives. A letter's been sent out, the congregation gathers together, again, small house, church, maybe 15 or 20 people, and everybody's quiet. Then the reader steps up and begins to read the following. Verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I do think that's a plausible scenario uh, that I put forward, and I think that's the way perhaps we need to hear the introduction to this wonderful letter uh, of the book of Hebrews. Because what the author is going to do, he's going to declare the absolute supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who are enduring great difficulties and great hardships, great trials, those who are desperately in need of hope. And he is encouraging them not to turn away from Christ, not to abandon Christ, but to lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising uh, the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. So the author is encouraging this group of believers and us, don't turn away from Christ. Don't, Don't abandon him. Because he alone is the only one who can help. He alone is the only one that can help any of us to make sense of the trials and the difficulties that we endure in this life. As we consider Christ more and consider Christ more fully as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we submit ourselves to him always, as we trust him in the midst of the trials in a fallen world. So I think that is in part why the book of Hebrews is regarded, has been regarded by the church as such a great treasure because it's a timeless book. It is a word from God to fallen men in a fallen world in the midst of trials and difficulties. And what we all need in this world is a greater vision of Christ. We all need a greater understanding of Him. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to give us that greater vision, that greater understanding. Now, this is just our second time in this new study here in the book of uh, Hebrews. Uh, Last time I just kind of introduced the book and gave some background information uh, that is available about the book. Uh, Some have suggested that perhaps no other New Testament book has been studied so much, and yet the agreement on authorship is not universal. As I told you, many have suggested Paul is the uh, author of the book, and uh, that's the traditional viewpoint. And, And they have attempted to prove Pauline authorship by many Pauline characteristics that are found in the book, certain phraseology, certain styles, certain terms, certain doctrinal parallelisms that they see in the writing of Paul and his other letters that are without question attested to him. But what I think is interesting is there are many others who have raised objections to Pauline authorship based on many of the same lines of arguments that the proponents of Pauline authorship put forward. So you have the same bits of information and people see it from different vantage points. And I told you many people have suggested possible, numerous other possible authors of the book of Hebrews other than Paul, maybe Barnabas, maybe Apollos, maybe perhaps even Luke or others. As I said, two thousand years have gone by, I and mean, uh, theologians, the people in the history of the church, have come to a unanimous, have not come to a unanimous decision on the authorship of the book. So I don't feel that I can definitively add anything to the argument of the conversation in a very short amount of time. So I'm not going to do that. If you want to live with Paul being the author, I'm good. That's good by me. Um, I, I personally am, am willing to accept that the author is unknown. Why is that? Well, because if you look at the book, he doesn't give his name. <laughs> he doesn't say who's writing. So I'm, I'm willing to believe the author is unknown, except that uh, he doesn't state his name in the text. He doesn't even say who he's addressing and it's a specific audience other than the, the title of the book, which is Hebrews. So obviously Jewish believers. As I told you, it's probably written somewhere before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. and sometime right after or uh, at the time of the persecution that breaks out in 64 A.D. under Nero. Now, I cannot be dogmatic about what I'm going to say next, but I think it's very plausible that the author doesn't give his name at the beginning of the book because I think he's interested in keeping himself in the background. And that's part of how, in the style he's writing, I think he wants the original recipients and us to understand they're actually receiving a letter from God. They're receiving a letter from God. So I think he's trying to stay out of the way. I think he's trying to stay out of the focus. He wants to draw the reader's attention to God, The God who speaks. Tremendously important sentence. The God who speaks. I think the writer of the book of Hebrews has intention to direct his uh, readers immediately to the merits of the person of Jesus Christ. To the superior merits, the supreme merits of the person of Christ. And to the merits of the new covenant in contrast to the old covenant. So there's no small talk. There's no introduction. He just launches. And he just takes it straight up Godward. Now, again, we don't know who the ultimate, uh, the, the human author is, but ultimately, as I told you, the author behind the book is the person of the Holy Spirit. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who's inspiring the human writer to direct the reader's attention to the person of Jesus Christ and to Christ's supremacy, Christ's superiority. We don't know exactly the location of the congregation, but it's a congregation, again, that's made up of Hebrew Christians. People who have come out of a Jewish background and have been converted to Jesus Christ. And as I told you, they are just like every other congregation. It's a mixed group of people. There are those Hebrew believers who have come to genuine faith in Christ. But they're struggling. And and they're struggling for a couple different reasons. And I think we just kind of need to step back a moment and realize that for those in this time who are Gentiles, who come out of pagan backgrounds those who are formerly worshiping idols, those who never had a true knowledge of the true God, them coming out of darkness to light is much easier. It's much easier for the Gentiles, in a sense, because they've never been a part of a formal religious system. On the other hand, Hebrew converts to Christ, after they have repented and accepted Christ, it's difficult for them to make a break with their old ways. Uh, But because the Jewish people have always had a a divinely revealed religion. And for centuries, they, they, centuries, they'd known the divinely appointed place of worship, the divinely revealed way of worship, because God himself had established their religion. And, And again, we don't understand it to the level we should, but being thrown out of the synagogue is a major issue. That's your, that's the center of your social religious life. And to be cast out of that is a major issue. So again, you go to the Gentiles and you say, well, look, let me tell you about Jesus. Here's the truth. Again, they don't have much background, any background of the truth. And so the Gentiles are much more receptive to hearing the truth about Jesus Christ. You go to the Jewish individual and you tell them, here's the truth. And you point them to Jesus as the Christ. They're more likely to say, I already know the truth. You say, no, 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 this is the truth from the one true and living God. And they would say, yeah, that's exactly who I believe in, the one true and a living God. And, and again, so uh, um, there, there's a difficulty for them to understand exactly what uh, the the the, uh, the gospel is saying, what the person of Jesus Christ is saying to these Hebrew converts. And so I think we just need to keep that in the back of our minds, <clears throat> that these people to come to Christ are are rejecting their heritage. This entire system that they've grown up with. Uh, and, and again, uh, much of the system uh, was God-given, and they understood that. So for the Hebrews to come to genuine faith in Christ is very difficult for them. <clears throat> again, very difficult for them to forsake their, their traditions. Therefore, some of them are holding on to traditions. Some of them are holding on to the, to the forms and the ceremonies that, that had been a part of their life uh, since early childhood. So again, I just think we need to appreciate that and have an appreciation for the difficulty just in general for the Jewish believers. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to encourage them that they can and they should let go of all the Judaistic trappings that they have grown up with. Which is, in God's providence, is going to be a little easier for them because in 70 AD uh, the temple is going to be destroyed. And when the temple is destroyed, there's no place to offer sacrifice, no place to formally worship as they had understood. There's no priesthood, and et cetera, and so forth. So it's going to become a little easier when the temple is gone. So I think we just need to appreciate the fact that these people are are struggling. These Jewish believers are struggling in part because of their heritage, their background. And they're struggling because of the pressure they're facing. Persecution is ramping up. They're facing more difficulties. Again, Ananias, the high priest, is uh, is unrelenting in his persecution of Jewish Christians, and he's banned them from all the holy places. And that was tough on them, since all of their life they had access uh, to the sacred places. Now they're going to have no more parts uh, of these services. They're they're going to be considered unclean. They can't go to the synagogue. They can't go to the temple. Uh, they can't offer any sacrifice. They can't communicate with the priest. Uh, they could have nothing to do with their own uh, people. Again, essentially cut off from their own people, uh, banished from society. So it's got to be tremendously difficult uh, for them in, in their thinking. So in a certain sense, I, I think it makes sense, or at least when it comes from understanding. Again, they're, they're being tempted to go back to the old, uh, go back to the old, the old patterns, the old standards. They've got to be saying, look, this is tough. I mean, this is tough. We, we, we we've received the gospel, we've believed upon Jesus, and it's hard for us because we're giving up so much. The cost is so much up to this moment. Therefore, these people are weak in faith, weak in their faith, weak in their testimony. Again, Jewish converts to Christianity who are struggling, genuine Hebrew believers. But also within this congregation, you've got another group of people. You've got a group of people who are intellectually convinced of the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ, but for whatever reason or reasons, more than likely pride, they're not willing to make the commitment of faith and repentance and come all the way to Christ. They're unwilling to come all the way to faith in Christ, intellectually convinced but unconverted. And again, there's people like this in, in, in every congregation. And again, the writer, who ultimately is the Holy Spirit, is encouraging and challenging these people to repentance, to come to saving faith in Christ. Submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And also within this group of people, I think you've got Jewish non-Christians, those who are just flat-out unbelievers. Again, I I don't see this makeup of this group any different than any other congregation uh, in America or anywhere around the world. You've just got these people in the the mix. There's always a certain group of people that are present who've heard the gospel and heard the truth of Jesus Christ, but they refuse to repent. They refuse to, to come to Christ. Now, obviously, the last two groups, the intellectually convinced and then the flat-out unconverted, these two groups are unbelievers. And throughout the text, you're going to hear, throughout the, the, the book, you're going to hear repeated warnings to them about the great sin of hearing the gospel, uh, the truth concerning Jesus Christ, and then failing to repent. Hebrews 10, verse 29, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the sin of God and is regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he's been sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? So it's a terrifying warning to those who hear the gospel and yet reject God's mercy. It's a terrifying warning to those who hear the gospel and reject God's kindness and His mercy. Through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I told you the last time, I think it's important to keep the, uh, that in the background of our minds when we're working our way through the book, the makeup of the congregation who are receiving the letter, because there's going to be various passages of Scripture, especially when we get to chapter 6 and 10, that we need to keep that in the background in order that we do not misinterpret the text, as many have done, wrongly believing that the writer of the book of Hebrews is teaching that genuine believers can somehow lose their salvation, which neither he is promoting nor does the Bible teach. Again, the general overall theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority, uh, the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ over everything and everyone. Because Jesus Christ is better. Uh, The writer uses that word 13 times. The superiority of the believer's position in Christ is better. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than the prophets. Christ is uh, better for the believer because he brings a better promise. He brings a better hope. He brings a better covenant. Uh, Again, he offers a better sacrifice. It's going to take us to a better country, which will lead to a better resurrection. Again, Christ is better than anything or everyone, anyone and anything, everything and everyone. He's better than any Old Testament purpose, a per, uh, person, better than any Old Testament person, better than any Old Testament sacrifice, better than any Old Testament ritual or institution. And, and the reason that Christ is better is that what Christ does, he brings that which is eternal versus that which is temporal. Christ brings that which is eternal contrast to that which is temporal. A better and eternal sacrifice, a better and eternal priesthood. Hebrews 5.9, having been made perfect, he, Jesus, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Hebrews 9.12, through his own blood, he entered the holy place uh, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 9:14 How much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself so, uh, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant that those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal uh, the eternal uh, inheritance. Hebrews 13:20 Now the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us uh, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom belong uh, the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is Jesus Christ, the one who's better. He brings that which is eternal. He's better. He's eternal. Therefore, he's great. He offers a great salvation. He's a great high priest. He brings a great reward. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. Again, the reality is there's no one like him. Eternal, faithful, perfect, the great high priest. He alone is the one who is able to go into the presence of the God the Father as the perfect priest to present the perfect sacrifice, which is himself. Because he alone is truly the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world the one whom all the Old Testament types and shadows pointed forward to. Now, it goes without saying, this is just going to be a tremendous uh, study. There's just a tremendous amount of wonderful truth in the book. It's going to be a great study. I hope you're excited for it. I am. We're just kind of getting cranked up, and this probably won't surprise you, but it might take us a little bit of time to get through the book. But I think it'll be well worth the time we spend because we're, we're going to together uh, understand who Jesus Christ is more, more and more. Now, last time I just did a very high-level introductory overview of the the book and then the first three verses. I I did not do them justice in any way, so I was just trying to introduce the book. So let's just go back and start our exposition formally here through the text. Verse 1. What the writer is going to do first off is he's going to help us understand, again, the superiority of the revelation found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the superior word. The revelation that Jesus Christ brings is infinitely better. Jesus Christ and the revelation he brings is infinitely better than any that the prophet brings. Because they all pointed toward him. They all pointed to him. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the pro- prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So again, God after he spoke, the writer again wastes no time. He just declares the reality, the fact that God is. the writer doesn't compile, uh, doesn't compile any arguments to persuade the skeptic that God is. He just declares the reality that God is. And again, we saw that in part in the psalm. Uh, God is. creation declares his glory, the reality. And he is not just a God who speaks through creation. he's a God who speaks he's the speaking God. He's the one who is the revealer of truth to men because he wants men to know who he is. He wants men to know what he is like. He wants men to know how they might come into right relationship with him. God, after he spoke. So again, the the true uh, living God is unlike the gods of the heathens. He's no dumb being. Uh, The God of the Bible is personal that's what you have to understand with speaking. He's personal. He, he is intimate. He's relational. He converses. He speaks. In fact, in the beginning of history, we find him speaking. God said, let there be light. And there was light, right? Genesis 1 verse 4. Psalm 33, 9. He spoke and it was done. He commanded it stood fast. He's the God who speaks he speaks to men, and he speaks to men through his word, the Bible. In fact, the Bible claims itself to be the written word of God. There's over a thousand passages of Scripture that indicate the fact that God speaks. And one reference I saw, there's over 5,000 times in the Old Testament, you get something along the lines of God said or thus says the Lord. So God is the speaking God. And the church throughout its history has believed and taught that the Bible in both testaments is the word of God. It alone is the written communication of, of God to humanity. And it's not that the church invented that claim. It's the claim that the Bible makes for itself. Apart from the self-revelation of God, men would have no understanding of who God is. They have no understanding of what God is like. No ability to understand or to discern or to know him. And no idea to have a relationship with him. As I told you last time, there are two major barriers to man having a relationship with a living God. It's sin and Satan. Sin and Satan keep men away from coming to an understanding of God on their own. As the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, they're foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised, or spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2.14. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They might not see the light of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So contrary to popular opinion, God can never be known by men on their own and their own self-discovery. God can only be known because of his determined self-revelation. A man on his own can't understand God. He can't know God. He can't understand truth. Again, there's no way that the natural can understand the supernatural. There's no way that man can understand God on his own, but God speaks. Sin and Satan make that barrier impossible. Sin has uh, made the, the supernatural ununderstandable by the natural, and then Satan blinds the, the eyes of the unbelieving. They can't see the gospel of the glory of Christ. But again, God speaks. He's a God who condescends to our level. He has spoken. And again, that tells us he's relational. It tells us he, he's not detached from his uh, creation. He didn't just start it and walk away uh, uh, and leave it like a watch laying on the counter. He's a part of it. He's, a, he's not uninvolved. He's involved. Again, the true and the living God is not like the, the false gods of man's making. He's not dumb, meaning can't speak, right? He's not indifferent. He speaks, and he's spoken in the past, and the reason that he's spoken in the past is the preparation for the coming of his son, who's the object of men's attention in the Old Testament, because God's son is the supreme one. God's son is the final revelation from God to mankind. Again, all the Old Testament prophets pointed forward to him, to the person of Jesus Christ. God, after he spoke long ago, it's a reference to the Old Testament, to the father's. Right to, to to God's Old Testament people, to the spiritual ancestors from the from the Jewish perspective, if you're the recipient of this letter, the forefathers who received uh, a God's revelation, uh, among just a few: Adam, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and others. The Bible says that God spoke to Adam in the cool of the day, Genesis three. The Bible says that God spoke to Abraham in visions and in visits. In fact, Abraham is called God's friend in James chapter 2, verse 23. God spoke to Jacob in a dream. He spoke to Moses face to face, Exodus thirty-three eleven, as a man speaks with a friend. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets. Now, if you have the ESV, it says God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So the prophets were God's chosen instruments, men whom God raised up to challenge their own time, and men entrusted with God's word, men who had the ability to say, Thus saith the Lord. Prophets were his messengers, men endowed with the Holy Spirit, with divine authority to speak from God to men, men commissioned by God to speak forth God's revelation. As he, he, God, is the the originator, the the source. Uh, the, The prophets of the Old Testament era were speaking God's word because God wanted his word and his will known to his people. So it's God who's the source of revelation. It's God who's the source of authority, not man. God was in the prophets at the time they wrote, the time they spoke, and proclaimed again the authoritative truth of the word of God to the audience. Because prophecy never originated with the thought process or the willing desires of men. Rather, 2 Peter 1 verse 21 says, No prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from, spoke from God. God is the source of revelation. And what these men wrote down under the power of the Holy Spirit, the direction of the Holy Spirit, was literally the inspired or the breathed out Word of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The the Word is the God-breathed-out Word. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in many portions, 39 Old Testament books, 27 the New Testament, 40-some-plus writers, Men from a variety of different backgrounds, shepherds, rulers, common people, over the course of about 1,500 years or so, and each was given some bit of truth. God spoke to Adam and told him that the Savior would come from the seed of the woman, Genesis 3. God spoke to Abraham and told him that the Savior would come from his seed, from his line, Genesis 12, 18, 22. God spoke to Jacob and told him the Savior would come from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. God spoke to David and told him the Savior would be born in his house. 2 Samuel 7 verse 16. God spoke to Micah and told him the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5. God spoke to Isaiah and told him the Savior would be born of a virgin. Uh, Isaiah 7. So God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways. Now, in the Greek text, it's a play uh, play on words. And you'll hear it when I speak it to you. God, palumeros, meaning in many portions, pelutropos. So it's just a play on words in the Greek. Uh, palumeros, meaning many portions; pelutropos, meaning many ways. So all the many ways, the palumeros, uh, um, God gave Isaiah sixty-six chapters, verses verse uh, sixty-six chapters of Revelation. Right, many portions. It's interesting though, he only gave Obadiah one. 66 to Isaiah one to Obadiah, Jeremiah he gave 32 chapters, Ezekiel 48, Daniel 12, Hosea 14, Joel 3, Haggai 2, etc. and so forth. Right? So forth. M- many portions. He didn't also just only speak to the writing prophets. He spoke to the non speaking or the non writing prophets, right? Who didn't author any books of the of the Bible such men such as Elijah. God spoke. God spoke to these prophets, and again, many portions, many ways. These men were the voice of God to Israel. These men were not uh, passive men, but they were burdened by the the moral and doctrinal decline, the sin of their people, and they cried out to the people for repentance, faith in God. So they're God's voice to the nation. Some of the prophets only ministered for a very short amount of time. A Haggai, one month, gives all four of his prophecies in a one-month time span. That was the entire length of his prophetic ministry, where you look at men like Daniel or guys like Moses, their prophecies, their their ministry covered a lifetime. God, after he spoke long ago to the followers in many portions and then in many ways, in many ways, many manners, sometimes through dreams, visions, history, parables, signs, symbols, object lessons, sometimes in face-to-face communication sometimes through natural phenomena sometimes through things such as storms and plagues etc and so forth god gave special revelation to uh, to his uh, through his word to the prophets as again exposed to just general revelation which we see all around us in in nature so that phraseology in many portions in many ways speaks to the fact of the the nature of uh, of revelation that it's progressive one man stood one position of or, portion of truth, and then God was pleased to reveal more truth to another man, and then another truth, and all these truths were built up on on each other. So again, the mouth of God's prophets, again, in many portions, in many different ways, revealed truth. God reveals truth to men progressively, from the lesser to the greater uh, degree of life. The revelation of God was never from error to truth, because everything that God says is true. He can't lie, but it goes from incomplete truth to more complete truth, a greater understanding of truth. It's very much along the lines of the dimmer switch in your, in your dining room. When you turn it from, you turn it counterclockwise, the, the light becomes brighter and brighter. That, that's a picture of progressive revelation, the truth of God growing brighter and brighter as he reveals more and more of it to men. Divine revelation from the Old Testament progressing to the New Testament from the promise to fulfillment promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament. And what's interesting is many of the Old Testament prophets never saw the fulfillment of anything they said. They never saw the fulfillment of anything that God was promising or speaking through them. You see that in Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 11, especially in verse 39. God speaking to the faithful men of uh, of, uh, of Israel, the faithful men of God that he used in the Old Testament. Verse 36 of that chapter says, Others experienced mockings and scourging. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves, holes in the ground. Verse 39 of Hebrews 11. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Again, like these Old Testament prophets, they never saw the fulfillment of the promises that they were declaring on behalf of uh, of God. They didn't see it in their own lives. They didn't see it fully realized. They didn't fully understand what they were writing on behalf of God. They were just, under the power of the Holy Spirit, pinning what God would desire for them to pin. And again, you see that uh, understanding in First Peter 1, verse 10 it says, as to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeing to you know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which angels long to look. So, again, apart from God and His revelation, men would never know anything about Him. We'd know nothing about Him. We'd never know Him. We'd know, have no understanding of Him, no knowledge of how to interact with Him. We'd have no understanding or ability to know how to have sins forgiven that we might come into His presence and not, might not be destroyed and eternally punished. But God speaks. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know the truth. And again, God speaks to men through His Word. Therefore, the Bible, the Word of God, carries with it divine authority. And men in great error want to set the Bible aside when it collides with their current cultural beliefs and standards. But God's Word is true. God demands that His Word be obeyed, that it be submitted to in life. Because it's by his standard, everything is going to be judged. Have you ever noticed that there are no opinion polls taken in the Bible anywhere? (laughs) Never in the history of mankind until our day has anyone cared what men have to say and we're going to take a vote on it. And ultimately, God doesn't care either because his word is true. And all men are liars. And everything is going to be judged by his standard. Therefore, because the Bible is divinely authoritative, it demands our obedience, demands our submission. Again, it's his standard. Everything is going to be judged. Therefore, as the believer, for the believer, we should recover, I think, what has been lost, obviously, long ago in the culture, but somewhat lost in the modern church, uh, a recovery of the honor and the respect that Scripture deserves. Because, again, it's God's own self-revelation to us. We should trust it. We should obey it. We should cherish it because it's a great treasure, but we should believe everything it says. And sometimes in life, especially when trials come, that becomes difficult for us. And we need to believe what the Bible says to be true. Everything about the nature and character of God and the certain security of time, where we are in time, and our future, whether, it become, uh, whether it's future as in our own future when it comes to our own mortality, or future as in the direction of the world. We just sang about the sovereignty of God, right? Tom Pennington. You can go to bed at night. Let everybody who is an unbeliever in the world worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. Because they don't know either. But God does. We can trust him. We need to encourage each other to believe what God's word says in every aspect that it speaks to. And if God wrote the Bible, and he did, therefore it's not only divinely authoritative, it's enduringly relevant because it never changes, because God never changes. By His nature, He can't. Therefore, His, his word never changes. It's true. Then it's true in all that it says, and it's true than in all that it says always. And, and God spoke uh, not only to men of the old, but He speaks to us today again through His word, and all of its binding, all of its relevant, all of its authoritative, because it comes from God. Again I think we just do one more time consider acknowledge the treasure that the word of God is if God had not chosen to reveal himself to us no one of us would know him no man would know him the most brilliant discourses on the discourses on the subject of God would be nothing more than utter nonsense and mere guesses if God had not graciously revealed himself to us in his word And I said it earlier, but I'm going to repeat myself, because the Bible is absolutely clear on the issue. Because of the fall, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. And the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're foolish to him, he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. As Stephen Cole points out, he says, There is a common misconception among evangelicals that anyone can choose at any time to understand the gospel and believe in Jesus. Our job is just to explain the gospel. But then people are free to decide whether to believe it or not. Cole says, but this view seriously underestimates the effects of the fall and goes directly against the very words of Jesus. It's going to quote out of Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus said there, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, And no one who the Father is except the Son and anyone who the Son wills to reveal Him. Cole goes on and says this. He says, those words out of Luke 10 do not make any sense if Jesus wills to reveal the Father to everyone. Clearly the primary factor, whether or not a person knows God lies with Jesus' choice of that person, not with the person's choice of Jesus. To say anything different denies the plain statement of our Lord and exalts proud fallen men. The Bible humbles the pride of man by showing that if God had not chosen to reveal himself to you through his word, you would be in complete spiritual darkness. You could not know him at all. I mean, that's a tremendous statement. And a vitally important truth that we get a grasp of and understand and cherish the blessed treasure that the revelation of the word of God is to mankind, to us. Think back to Matthew 16 when when the Lord is speaking to Peter. Matthew 16, verse 15. Who do you say that I am? Right? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Matthew 16, verse 17. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Here it is. But my Father who is in heaven. We would know absolutely nothing about God unless God in his kindness revealed himself to us through his word. And he's done that. The word of God is the treasure above all treasures. Sweeter than honey. More desirable than gold. It is a precious resource. A precious gift, a treasure that God has given to us. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, Now that too is a tremendously important statement. Because God no longer speaks in many portions in many ways through the prophets, that's over with. Now he speaks to us in his son. Again, Jesus Christ is God's greatest revelation to mankind. Jesus Christ is God's final revelation to mankind, God's final word to mankind. God has said all he has to say in Jesus Christ and he's not going to say anything more than he's already said in Jesus Christ. In fact, I think it's important to note uh, to note uh, the phrase we, when you read there it says God after he spoke and then the phrase in these last days he has spoken both of those words spoken spoken are in the aorist tense which means they're a past completed action. God after he spoke, in these last days he spoke. Aorist past completed action. That means he's done speaking. He's done speaking. God's revelation is full. It's final. It's complete in Christ. Everything you need to know, everything you want to know about God is fully and finally found in the person. Fully and finally seen in the person of Jesus Christ. John 12, verse 45. Jesus speaking says, he who beholds me, uh, beholds the one whom he sent. Uh, f- John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 1, verse 15. Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 3 here in Hebrews 1 Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Everything you want to know about God is found in the person, fully and finally, in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything you want to know about God is fully, finally seen in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, you see God's righteousness. You see God's hatred for sin when you see the events that took place on Calvary's cross. In the person of Jesus Christ. You see God's hatred for sin. So in these last days. So ever since Christ has come, the world has been in the last days. The phrase in these last days is something that would have been very familiar again to the Hebrew audience, the Jewish individuals of the day. Because whenever the Jews saw or heard those words, immediately in their mind they had messianic thoughts. Because the promise of the scripture was, in the last days, Messiah would come. You read in Jeremiah 33, uh, Micah 5, uh, Zechariah 9. In fact, the woman at the well, although she's a Samaritan, she understood that. She told Jesus, John 4, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She knew that when the Messiah comes, he's going to unfold all the full, final revelation of God to mankind. And he has done that because he has come. He's Jesus Christ. So there's no new revelation coming. All the Old Testament prophets, each one of them in some way or another, pointed to the Messiah. They pointed to Jesus as the Christ. And again, it's only Jesus himself that everything is brought together. Everything is made whole. All these Old Testament promises... Because Jesus Christ is the full, final, complete revelation of God to mankind. And again, God has nothing more to say than he's already said in Christ. To add anything to the Word of God, to add anything to the New Testament is blasphemous. The Book of Mormon, blasphemous. The Book of Science and Health or anything else that claims to be some kind of additional revelation from God is blasphemous. In these last days... God has finalized his revelation and he's done it in his son. It's finished. In fact, the book of Revelation says, Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 and 19, it promises a curse on anyone who adds to or takes away from the word of God. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is establishing the priority of Jesus Christ greater than any Old Testament prophet, greater than any revelations made by the Old Testament prophets because, again, they all pointed to him. And in Christ, God has fully and finally expressed Himself. And again, in these last days, that phrase is set against long ago. So long ago, the God spoke to the fathers and the prophets. But in these last days, He spoke to us in His Son, by His Son. In the ESV, now the emphasis in verse two here falls on the, the word Son. Strictly speaking, God only has one Son. Uh, uh, Others are created as sometimes sons of God are referring to angels, sometimes sons of uh, of God are referring to as believers, adopted, but God only has, uh, uh, strictly speaking, only has one son. And and not to be too technical here, but look kind of carefully at your text there. It's interesting to note the noun son is what's known as anarthrosis, just means without article. As the word his is not there in the original. Again, some of your translations, you may see that. The word his in your translation may be italicized. And it's italicized because the the translator wants you to understand, wants to give you that information. That word is not there in the Greek. It's been placed there to help us in the English translation. So a very rough translation would be, in these last days, God spoke to us in son. God has spoken to us in son. It's kind of a little difficult in, in the English. But it's a tremendously important concept to grasp. And Arthur Pink does a good job. He illustrates it like this. He says, if I told you that I went to a church and the preacher spoke in Latin, you'd understand what I meant. He spoke in Latin. And Latin describes the particular language that he used. And basically, that's the very same idea that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across here. In the past, right, in these last... He spoke to providence, but in these last days... God has spoken to us in Son. So in Son is a reference to the characteristic of God's revelation that again, although in the past he spoke through prophets, but now he speaks in son. It's just another way to emphasize the nature and the character of God's communication to us in Christ. It's it's a way to communicate the Son's quality. It's just another way to state that the the, the Son is the vastly superior form of communication uh, from God to men. In fact, the ultimate form of communication. And again, it just points out the fact that God has nothing else to say to men than He's already said in His Son. Jesus Christ, again, is God's full, final revelation to mankind. So again, if you're looking for something else uh, from God, you're not going to find it. Because Jesus Christ is the superior form uh, of communication. Jesus Christ is God's supreme revelation. Everything you need to know about God, everything you need to know about life, everything you need to know about salvation and a relationship forgiven with the creator of the universe is found in the person of Jesus Christ. You need look nowhere else because God has nothing else to say except what he said in Jesus And this is interesting, I think, because it's not just whether the the message that Jesus Christ delivers or declares God's message, but in Son, reveals that the Father's heart has been revealed through Christ. That that Christ Himself is the message. Jesus Christ Himself is God's message. John three sixteen for God so loved the world he what? He gave His only begotten Son. Jesus Christ is the message. Again, all that God has to say, all that God thinks, all the counsels of God, all the promises of God, all the gifts of God are found in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For in Jesus Christ, we see God's mercy. We see God's justice. We see also in Jesus Christ, God's compassion on display. In the substitutionary death of of Jesus Christ, we see God demonstrating that mercy, that love, because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's Jesus Christ. He's the message. Jesus in his resurrection. Jesus and his triumph over the grave. Jesus in his, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. All of that tells us, and it tells the recipients of the book of Hebrews, we should never depart from him. Because Jesus Christ is the supreme one. Jesus Christ is the superior one. Jesus Christ is the sufficient one. Therefore, we should be always what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Always. It's interesting, two times in the incarnation of uh, Jesus Christ, the Father spoke from heaven concerning his Son, once at his baptism and once at his transfiguration. And he said this, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. God, after he spoke long ago to the prophets, to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. Next time, Lord willing, we'll look and see who this son is and how God describes him in the uh, verses that are upcoming. All right? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for your truth. We're thankful for your word that points us to the person of Christ. And again, may we all uh, not depart from him. Help us to fix our eyes completely on Jesus Christ, to understand the greatness of our salvation and the greatness of the person whom you have given to us. What a wonderful truth. We love you and we're so thankful that you have made your love known to us. Through your Son, our Savior, in whose name I pray, amen.